never remain free if they are not willing and need be to fight for their vital interests. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Praise Yahweh and pass the ammunition. Restoration Hour with Pastor Eli James. Welcome Christian Israel, Pastor Eli James here. Today is August 26, 2023. And the topic of tonight's show is actually a three-part series by Douglas Petrovich, a linguist and archaeologist, from his website entitled Patterns of Evidence. And in this series of three articles, I don't think I'll get through all three of them tonight, he argues that Hebrew is the oldest language, which is something we've been arguing here at Eurofolk Radio very from the very beginning, because the, the only other qualifier of the academic world is Phoenician and that Phoenician is impossible because there was no country called Phoenicia until after the Israelites invaded Canaan land. Okay. So, and of course the Canaanites and the Israelites and the Hebrews, they all spoke Hebrew or some version of Hebrew. That includes the Canaanites spoke a version of Hebrew since they were, they were Hamites. They spoke a version of Hebrew as well because Ham, Shem, and Japheth were brothers and they spoke the same language in the household. And Hamitic, Shemitic, and Japhetic were all very similar languages. And of course, even Greek is based on Hebrew, Japhetic Hebrew. So the idea that Phoenician is the oldest language is just ridiculous, utterly ridiculous. The Bible. But biblical Hebrew is far older than Phoenician, and it probably goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And that's why I refer to it as Proto-Hebrew. Whatever language Adam and Eve spoke in the Garden was, carried, the garden. On, yeah, it was carried on by various yes. uh, descendants. Okay, so, um, all right, so uh, I'm going to start with this for part one. And the title is, New Discoveries Indicate Hebrew Was World's Oldest Alphabet, Part 1, by Steve Law. And it shows here, uh, it looks like a sandstone inscription, which has uh, the name of Ahisamach, Ahisamach Exodus 31.6, on the two horizontal lines, uh, credit Douglas Petrovich. Okay. Okay, uh, so it says, and Moses wrote down all the words of Yahweh, Exodus 24, 4. Okay, oh, so I'm getting feedback here from uh, from the Telegram channel. I don't know why that should be. I'm not on, uh, I'm not on uh, Skype at all. I usually get that when I'm on Skype. But in any case, yeah, hello to everybody in the Eurofolk Radio chat room as well. So this is what we're going to be talking about here. Uh, remarkable new evidence discovered by Dr. Douglas Petrovich may change how the world understands the origins of the alphabet 
And who first wrote the Bible? Well, it was written by Hebrews, right? It was written by Israelites. And uh, you know, who wrote the book of Enoch? What language was the book of Enoch written in? I'll bet it was written in Hebrew, right? So uh, it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. So, But uh, although we ha- may not have any Hebrew, extant Hebrew writings of Enoch and other books, uh, really ancient books, it's evident to me that they spoke a form of Hebrew and that just continued on until the breakup of languages you know, later on in Babylon. But even there, the, the language breakup wasn't that horrible because even after Babylon, we see that the, the Shemites, the Japhethites, and the Hamites were all able to converse with one another, write letters to one another, etc., etc. So, it's really obvious that Hebrew is the oldest language on the planet. There's no, simply no doubt about this. So let's continue. Anyway, uh, as to be expected, his controversial proposals have ignited contentious debate. Yeah, with those who don't want to admit that the Bible and Hebrew are the oldest languages, right? In this first of a three-part series, the background and importance of this issue will be explored before some of the specifics of the new finds and the pushback from other scholars is covered in part two. Now, one of the reasons I've chosen this subject for tonight is because this is actually a partial attack on uh, Mr. Zimmerman of the I saw the light ministries.com, who is a Jew. I talked about him a couple of weeks ago, and he claims that Hebrew is not the first language. He claims that Assyrian is the first language of the uh, Hebrew people and that the Bible was actually written in Assyrian, not Hebrew. Of course, that's an outlandish claim based on on a Kabad Lubavitcher uh, opinion, not on any sort of historical or archaeological or linguistic facts. It's a Kabad Lubavitcher opinion, which is uh, worth. That's what it's worth. <laughs> Whatever a Kabad Lubavitcher says is not worth anything. And so uh, I just wanted to prove that this uh, Zimmerman guy who uh, argues that uh, the name of Yahweh is not correct and it should actually be sp- spelled with a J and it should be pronounced Jesus. Uh, folks, this is really incredible stuff. Poor scholarship or no scholarship at all. Uh, having finally read through his whole article, which is a very tedious article because there's so much in that article that's absolutely fallacious that I actually got tired of documenting the errors that he has made. But I have to go through it because I have to demonstrate how this Jew, as well as other Jews, the Masoretes, are trying to suppress the name of Yahweh and uh, Mr. Zimmerman's uh, attempt to suppress the name of Yahweh is just a continuation of Masoretic you know, influence over our people, over the Bible, over everything else in the world. And so this, this person is not to be trusted. But let's continue. So there's no doubt that Hebrew is the oldest language in the world. And even the stick figures in America uh, that, that spell out the name of Yahweh in uh, Paleo-Hebrew or versions of Paleo-Hebrew in stick figures. Uh, It was recognized by scholars already here in America that this is the name of Yahweh, and there was no such thing as a letter J until the Middle Ages. So uh, what that guy is teaching is just absolute garbage. But let's continue. 
A common teaching in schools for many decades has been that the Phoenicians developed the world's first alphabet around 1050 B.C. Well, then, how were the Hebrew scriptures written? (laughs) How were they written? How was the Bible written down by Moses, you know, uh, seven or eight hundred years before? You know, this is absurd around 1050 B.C. This is an opinion of those who don't believe in the Bible. This alphabet was believed to have then spread to the Hebrews and other cultures in the Canaan area over the next centuries, eventually being picked up by the Greeks and Romans and passed down to the modern alphabets of today. However, many may have missed the implications of this view for the traditional understanding that Moses wrote the first books of the Bible. Yeah, how could Moses have written a Bible if uh, the language didn't exist until 1050 B.C.? That's ridiculous. While writing had long been in use by the Egyptians and the people of Mesopotamia, they used complicated writing systems, hieroglyphics and cuneiform, that were limited because they employed nearly a thousand symbols with many more variants, kind of like Chinese today, with many more variants representing not just sounds, but also syllables and whole words and you know, objects. The messages they conferred were fairly simple, while the Bible uses complex forms of language. The genius of the first alphabet was to boil everything down to about two dozen letters that originally represented the sounds of consonants only. From these few letters, every word of a language can easily be represented, and probably even fewer, but uh, we have the various sounds of the consonants and the various sounds of the vowels. So language will have to be limited to the sounds that we can make with our lips, tongue, palate, uh, throat, etc. So, therefore, the, the symbols that we employ have to somehow incorporate the sounds we can make with our palate. So here is a, a bunch of symbols uh, these uh, look like cuneiform. Yeah, an example of cuneiform wedge-shaped script that had hundreds of different symbols, some with 30 or more variants. And this is from Wikimedia, it says here. So we see that with all of these different symbols, making a, a particular language from only 22 symbols, leaving the Vowel, the symbols for the vowels out, because, yeah, yeah, Swahili. Oh, is Hebrew older than Swahili, older than Chinese? Well, it's interesting. Uh, I think Chinese is actually, the Chinese stick figures actually come from the Garden of Eden, because uh, the Chinese are totally familiar with the story of the Garden of Eden, and their stick figures uh, represent uh, Garden of Eden symbols as well. Okay, so yeah, Moses used the tablet. (laughs) <laughs> right and other you know he, he used he wrote on all kinds of stuff yes it's also older than ebonics yes <laughs> does anybody actually speak ebonics i don't think so the jews tried to make that a, a language but they, they never succeeded because people in business would never pick up on it right they, they wouldn't no, they wouldn't understand each other that's a crazy world we live in right anyway so he continues here For a work as sophisticated as the Bible, you need the flexibility of an alphabet. If the alphabet was not invented until around 1050 B.C., 
then Moses could not have written the opening five books of the Bible four centuries earlier. Now, new evidence that may change everything has been announced by Dr. Douglas Petrovich, an archaeologist, epigrapher, and professor of ancient Egyptian studies at Wilfrid Laurier University in Waterloo, Canada. Epigraphy is the study of inscriptions, making classifications and looking for the slightest distinctives between writing systems while defining their meanings and the cultural context in which they were written. After many years of careful study, Petrovich believes he has gathered sufficient evidence to establish the claim that not only was the alphabet in use centuries earlier than many believe, it was in the form of early Hebrew, something that almost no one has previously accepted. Now, here's the strange aspect of this, folks. All of the secular linguists will say that Phoenician and Hebrew are virtually identical. They have it backwards in placing Phoenician first. It's not possible because the Phoenicians didn't exist until well after the Israelites invaded Canaan land. Therefore, Hebrew had to come first. It's purely historical and logical. But these secular linguists aren't concerned about logic and history because they hate the Bible. And plus, they all falsely believe that the Jews are Israelites, and they have created two false categories, namely Hebrew, that is Jewish Hebrew, and the the Indo-Aryan languages. Okay, But the fact is that the Indo-Aryan languages are also based on Hebrew. Uh, but the only reason they make that distinction is because they they see very clearly that the Jewish people with their hook noses and their uh, strange habits are are not the same as the Indo-Aryans. But, but they believe the false Jewish claim that they're Israel. So this is why they have this dichotomy between the Phoenicians and the Hebrews when in fact they're basically the same people. The Phoenicians were a combination of Israelites and Canaanites. This Phoenicia was not built or established until after the Israelites tamed that territory. Unfortunately, they didn't clear the territory entirely of Canaanites. They put many of the tribes of Canaan under tribute. The tribe that inherited Tyre and Sidon was the tribe of Asher. Asher inherited that territory. Unfortunately, they did not drive out the Canaanites entirely. They put them under tribute, as our Bible completely uh, tells us. So, But also, Zebulon, Naphtali, and Dan were in that vicinity. And all four of those tribes, and virtually every tribe of Israel, was good at shipbuilding, even though they weren't all coastal tribes. They were all good at shipbuilding and sailing the waters, especially Dan and Asher and Zebulon and Naphtali. So these four tribes especially inhabited the seacoast of the Mediterranean, and they were the original Phoenicians. They were not Canaanites. And there's a passage in, let me quote it here, 1 Kings 5.7. I'm pretty sure, yeah, here it is. Uh, this is about Hiram. And Hiram was a Yahweh worshiper. The proof is right here, 1 Kings 5 7. 
And it came to pass, when Hiram heard the words of Solomon, that he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be Yahweh this day, which hath given unto David a wise son over this great people. In my opinion, Hiram was either an Asherite or a Zebulonite or a Naphtalite or a Danite, more, more than likely an Asherite, because no Canaanite would, would worship Yahweh. They had their own gods, and there's no way a Canaanite would worship Yahweh. So the historians have done incomplete work on the country called Phoenicia. In fact, the word Phoenicia simply means purple because of the purple dye of a certain mollusk that they were able to extract the dye from. So that word Phoenician is a very late vintage, very late vintage, and after the Israelites took over Tyre and Sidon. Now, of course, those same Israelites became paganized shortly after this episode, shortly after the building of the temple by Solomon. And Solomon precipitated this paganism himself by worshiping false gods and marrying Canaanite and Edomite women. And so shortly after the reign of Solomon, these these territories became paganized. And it's those paganized Israelites that the world falsely refers to as Phoenicians. Okay? That's what really happened. So let's get back to this uh, document here. And it says, okay, the standard presentation of Phoenician being the first alphabet is curious, since scholars have long known of a much older alphabetic inscription. In 1904 to 1905, Sir Flinders Petrie, or Petrie, the father of Egyptian archaeology, and his wife Hilda, discovered several rudimentary alphabetic inscriptions in the copper and turquoise mines that were controlled by the ancient Egyptians on the Sinai Peninsula. Sir Alan Gardner, the premier linguist of his day, deciphered some of the writings and proclaimed that they were a form of primitive alphabet and that they used a Semitic language. The script became known as Proto-Sinaitic and was dated to the late Middle Bronze Age in the 1600s or early 1500s B.C. Now, of course, you can bet that the secular linguists who basically follow the instructions of their Jewish overlords said, no, that's not possible. Why? Well, why are, are the Jews interested in suppressing this kind of information? Well, it's because, we'll, as we'll find out, it was none other than uh, Ephraim and Manasseh who took the Egyptian hieroglyphic figures and converted them into phonemes, in other words, converted them into written Hebrew. Obviously, spoken Hebrew had existed for centuries, if not millennia, before Egypt. Okay, So spoken Hebrew was already extant and was the mother of all languages, no doubt about it. So let's continue. So the script became known as Proto-Sinaitic and was dated to the late Middle Bronze Age, uh, B.C. W.F. Albright, the American known as the father of biblical archaeology, popularized the idea that these were Semitic writings and many took up the idea that Israelite slaves were responsible for these inscriptions. And they were, (laughs) these clues, they were right. Israelites were responsible for these inscriptions. 
Hebrew, as the world's oldest alphabet, was first claimed in the 1920s by German scholar Hubert Grimme. Quote, although Grimme identified some of the Egyptian inscriptions as Hebrew, he was unable to identify all of the alphabet correctly, unquote, explained Roni Siegel, academic advisor for the Israel Institute of Biblical Studies, an online language academy specializing in biblical Hebrew, who spoke to Breaking Israel News. Obviously, this person is a Jew, and the Jews might not want this type of information to be fully revealed. Anyway, as modern skepticism about the biblical account of the Exodus period took hold late in the 20th century, scholars have generally retreated from the idea that the Proto-Sinaitic inscriptions were the product of Israelite mine workers. Additionally, the discovery of many other alphabetic inscriptions in the Canaan area, dated to the period from 1200 to 1050 BC, prompted the need for a new category. These and a few earlier fragments from that area were all similar to the Proto-Sinaitic constructions, were labeled as Proto-Canaanite. So again, here the, the academics are doing everything possible to destroy Hebrew as the original language. They don't want Hebrew to be the original language because they don't believe the Bible. And the Jews are perfectly comfortable to uh, you know, have these scholars deceive themselves. Okay, so here's some uh, images here. The projected Proto-Hebrew original letter, which is Aleph is like a, uh, the, a bull, a bullhead with horns. And uh, the second one looks like Lamech. I'm not sure. But uh, I think the, the fourth one is W for water. We discussed the fact that the Wa syllable is universal for water all over the world in virtually every language. Okay. And the inscription here, or, or subscript, a comparison between the Hebrew block letters that came into use after the Babylonian captivity, and this is what the Jews use, that commenced around 586 B.C. It's No, it didn't commence that, that early. It's the, it, this is the Jewish version of it. The proposed original alphabet of Proto-Hebrew and the Egyptian hieroglyphics that may have been the basis of many of the letters from Douglas Petrovich. So I'm gratified that Mr. Petrovich is using the term Proto-Hebrew. We've been using that terminology here at Eurofolk Radio for a good couple of decades already. The system for all these forms appeared to have been developed from Egyptian hieroglyphics, which was used as a basis for creating 22 alphabetic letters representing consonantal sounds expressing the Semitic language of the writings, which is essentially the Hebrews. The first writings accepted by scholars as using Hebrew script are all from after 10,000 or 1000 BC and classified as using the Paleo-Hebrew alphabet. Well, the Paleo-Hebrew alphabet is simply the most primitive form of the written Hebrew. The ironic thing is that these Paleo-Hebrew writings are often impossible to distinguish from the Phoenician ones, yes, and were just as much a natural development from the earliest Proto-Sinaitic and Proto-Canaanite examples. Yet most sources continue to communicate the standard paradigm. In their article on the Phoenician alphabet, Wikipedia states, quote, the Phoenician alphabet called by convention the Proto-Canaanite alphabet for inscriptions older than around 1050 B.C., is the oldest verified alphabet. Uh, so this is 
archaic language here. The, the secular world does not want to admit that the Hebrews invented the alphabet. Continuing, this view is maintained despite the fact that the oldest examples don't come from Phoenicia, from Phoenicia and predate the existence of Phoenician culture. Might this practice be conveniently retained by those who don't want Moses to be considered as a possible author of the Torah? Indeed. And the Jews are happy with this confusion. They're indeed happy with this confusion because they don't want the Bible verified. If we verify the Bible, then we'll find out that we Caucasians are the true Israelites and they're, they're imposters. They're actually these very Canaanite people. Quote, therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, Joshua 23, verse 6. Now, thus, these words were written by Joshua around 1400 B.C. The exact date of the invasion of Canaan land was 1406 B.C., the Exodus began in 1446 B.C. So these things were written in the 15th century B.C. So did the Hebrew alphabet develop from Phoenician or was it the other way around? Okay, we've been arguing the other way around from the beginning here at Eurofolk Radio. Could the earliest forms of the alphabet, Proto-Sinaitic and Proto-Canaanite, just as easily be considered Proto-Hebrew. Of course they could. And was it this early form of Hebrew that was the world's first true alphabet? This earliest form of Hebrew could have spread throughout the region and developed into what is now called Phoenician and Paleo-Hebrew. The mainstream of scholarship has not gone in that direction, insisting that the most precise we can be with these alphabetic scripts is to say that they are Shemitic, and Hebrew is only one variety of many Shemitic languages from that time. So that's the standard wisdom, and no Jewish scholar has corrected these people. It's up to Christian, white Christian scholars to make the correction. Things got more interesting when John and Deborah Darnell made a 1999 discovery in, the Middle Egypt, in Middle Egypt of alphabetic inscriptions at a place called Wadi el-Hol, these appeared to be a hybrid between hieroglyphic symbols and alphabetic symbols that once again fit the scenario of hieroglyphs to Semitic script theme. Okay, so the proposal here by Petrovich and these other linguists that he has mentioned already was that the original writing of hieroglyphs or cuneiform script was not syllabic or phonetic. It was simply symbols of objects which could tell a story when strung together. However, as time developed, some of these symbols, these hieroglyphs and cuneiform figures, did serve the function of phonemes. In other words, they were connected to certain sounds that you can make with your palate. And so this developed gradually over time so that the alphabet, which is based on phonemes put together to form words, took several centuries for sure. But it looks like it really started in Egypt from what uh, Douglas Petrovich is saying here. So let me repeat this sentence. These appear, these symbols appear to be a hybrid between hieroglyphic symbols 
and alphabetic symbols that once again fit the scenario of hieroglyphs to Semitic script theme. The surprising thing was that they were able to date, they were dated to the 12th dynasty, which in conventional terms equated to around 1850 BC. Thank you very much. These realities prompted more scholars to return to the possibility that these early scripts were connected to the Israelites' stay in Egypt. Egyptologist David Roll, R-O-H-L, theorized that the initial breakthrough may have come from Joseph during his time in power in Egypt, and that this system was later developed by Moses in time for him to begin writing what would become the first books of the Bible at Mount Sinai. Roll wrote the following, quote, It took the multilingual skills of an educated Hebrew prince of Egypt to turn these simple first scratchings into a functional script, capable of transmitting complex ideas and a flowing narrative. The Ten Commandments and the Laws of Moses were written in Proto-Sinaitic, which is the same as Proto-Hebrew. The prophet of Yahweh, master of both the Egyptian and Mesopotamian epic literature, was not only the founding father of Mosaism or Yahwism, not Judaism. Judaism was, you won't find that word Judaism in the Bible anywhere. Judaism is a Masoretic Jewish creation. It's not biblical. Christianity and through the Quranic traditions, Islam, but also the progenitor of the Hebrew, Canaanite, Phoenician, Greek, and therefore modern Western alphabetic scripts. David Roll, 2002, The Lost Testament. So let me just repeat this last sentence because this is totally accurate. The prophet of Yahweh, meaning Moses, master of both the Egyptian and Mesopotamian epic literature, was not only the founding father of Mosaism, Christianity, and through the Quranic traditions, Islam, but also the progenitor of the Hebrew, Canaanite, Phoenician, Greek, and therefore modern Western alphabetic scripts. David Roll, 2002. But I insist that Enoch had a form of writing also. He had to have had a form of writing to write the books of Enoch, 365 books as tradition relates, and other early traditions as well. So there had to be writing way before the flood even. But whatever writing there was, most of it was lost. And of course, the, the kingdoms that appeared right after the flood because it was not global, it was the it was mainly local to the area of Turkey. But it was uh, the deluge was global, but the flood was really horrible in that area. the The cultures in that area sprang right back up within within a hundred years. They, they were fully blooming uh, societies because they escaped the flood. They went to high ground. And they weren't killed by the flood, as the Judeo-Christian churches falsely teach. And the rabbis falsely teach that, too. Anyway, however, these assertions have not shifted the position of most scholars. There just wasn't enough specific evidence to move these early alphabetic writings from the category of, quote-unquote, Semitic to that of, quote-unquote, Hebrew. Enter Douglas Petrovich and his claims of new and multiple examples of just such specific evidence. Exactly what he has found and what some of the initial reaction has been will be the subject of part two of this article in next week's Thinker Update. And that's coming right up. I'm going to have to click click the link and go to part two 
which uh, those of you following along can do that and read along with me. And here we are. New discoveries indicate Hebrew was world, the world's oldest alphabet, part two. And let me just take a quick look at the uh, chat room, okay? Well, yeah, it's the oldest language of our people, right? But uh, who are our people? Well, if I'm correct in my assumption that Enoch <laughs> wrote things down, wrote things down, or it's possible, no, not in the case of Enoch. The book of Enoch is too, uh, the, the various books of Enoch are too full of information that uh, could be transmitted merely by word of mouth legends, as most of the world's legends are all around the world. And they just basically get the gist of the story. No, the, the book of Enoch is so full of information, you know, the names, the actual names of the fallen angels, etc., etc., that this would have required a lot of you know, re- recording of some kind, okay? So letters had to have existed when Enoch composed his books, but it was probably lost because of the flood, and we had to start all over again. Okay, so, yeah, right, seven, we've got Canaanites defining our history for us. Very good. That is absolutely correct. So let's get back to now part two of this fascinating historical record. Quoting Exodus 24.4, And Moses wrote down all the words of Yahweh. Now, it could be also that Yahweh dictated these words, these letters to Moses as he wrote. The implication here is that Ephraim and Manasseh began to develop phonetic language in written form from the hieroglyphs of Egypt, with some of these hieroglyphs already having phonetic usage. But it's also possible that Yahweh simply used Moses to create this language, right? Or to reinvent the language, put it that way. So, in the second of a three-part series, we will be looking at the controversial claims and startling new evidence from Dr. Douglas Petrovich that suggests the world's oldest alphabet was actually an early form of Hebrew. I remember well the buzz around the halls and meeting places at the Evangelical Theological Society's meeting held in the fall of 2015 in Atlanta. Patterns of Evidence was there to promote their new film and book. The annual meeting featured hundreds of breakout sessions where leading Christian scholars from around the world presented their latest findings and proposals in their areas of specialization to several thousand attendees. Now, it's interesting that there's not very many Jews doing this kind of work, except those who residing in Israel, you know, where, where they're close to the action, where close to the original places that are being unearthed, okay? But... Uh, I don't know of any Jewish archaeologists coming from any other parts of the world and giving, you know, lectures <laughs> about archaeology. It's our people who are doing this, not the Jews. And the Jews often hide the evidence, too. With dozens of speakers to choose from during any given hour, deciding which session to attend was difficult. But the title of one presentation was the source of particular interest and excitement. Quote, the world's oldest alphabet 
Hebrew texts of the 19th century B.C., unquote. Groups I engaged with had already been talking about this presentation, and as I negotiated the crowd hallway, crowded hallways between presentations, I overheard, I can't miss that one, from several hurried conversations. I knew I would need to get there early to secure a seat. It was the date and the title of the presentation that had captured the imaginations of so many. Hebrew texts that early in history were just so far beyond the normal scope of thinking by about a thousand years that they had just had to see what was behind these fantastic claims. Well, here, I have to, I have to thump my chest because we here at Eurofolk Radio have been saying that Hebrew is the oldest language in the world for decades, a couple of decades now, and we've just been waiting for the rest of the world to catch up. And lo and behold, they're catching up finally. Continuing, the presentation given to that overflowing room did not disappoint. Numerous examples of inscriptions were shown that not only pointed to Hebrew as the first alphabet, but also validated the biblical account of the Israelites in Egypt. Professor Petrovich had been studying the inscriptions on a series of nine-foot-tall stone slab markers called stele, which recorded the annual expeditions of a high official from Egypt down to the southwestern Sinai turquoise mines called Sarabit el-Kadim. This is just west of the traditional Mount Sinai location. The official had recorded images of himself at the bottom of the stele, where he was depicted on a donkey in the middle with an Egyptian attendant walking behind him and a boy walking in front. Each year's inscription would show this boy growing taller. <laughs> what caught his attention was that one stela did not use Egyptian hieroglyphics, but rather a rudimentary form of the alphabet in a Shemitic language. If Petrovich's interpretation is correct, it speaks of Joseph's son Manasseh and his son Shechem, Manasseh's son Shechem, Joshua 17.2. So I guess the, these annual inscriptions showed the boys getting taller and taller. Okay. Okay. Sinai 115, year 18 of Amenemhet III, circa 1842 B.C. The inscription included the date of year 18 of Amenemhat III, the 12th dynasty ruler around the time of Joseph, in both the view of a Middle Bronze Age Middle Kingdom Exodus around 1450 BC, represented in the film Patterns of Evidence, the Exodus by David Roll and John Bimson, and in the view of a Late Bronze Age New Kingdom Exodus at 1446 BC, while retaining the conventional dating for Egypt represented in the film Patterns of Evidence, blah, blah, blah. This is because there are two main views for the length of the time the Israelites spent in Egypt. Perhaps more on that debate in a future thinker update. Regardless, this date is more evidence that the Ramesses Exodus theory held by the majority of scholars may be causing them to miss evidence for the Exodus that actually exists centuries earlier than where they are looking. Yeah, of course, the secular scholars want their version of history to prevail over biblical archaeology. So if this interpretation is correct, it would also establish Hebrew as the world's first alphabet. According to Petrovich, the inscription says that this expedition included a group with significant connections to the early Israelites. He reads the inscription as, quote, 
six Levantines, Hebrews of Bethel the Beloved. The Levant is the area of Canaan and its surroundings. In the biblical account, Bethel was one of the headquarters of Jacob and his family before they moved to Egypt. It was their hometown. It was their hometown. So, these inscriptions verify the Bible history, no doubt about it. Now, a quote from Genesis 35, 1 and 6. God said, or Yahweh said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the Elohim who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And I think there were about 80 people with him altogether. Professor Petrovich said that the second of his forthcoming books will show clear proofs that he fe- that the featured character can be none other than Manasseh, the son of Joseph. This, along with his other findings, were again presented last November at the annual meeting of the American Schools for, of Oriental Research, this time drawing the attention and criticism of a wider audience. This is good. Criticism is good. It causes much conversation. And contention is good, too, because that causes more uh, discussion and more people to become curious and do research. In part one of the series, it was shown that most academic outlets have long portrayed Phoenician as the world's first alphabet, and we have consistently told you that this is false, which developed after the time of the Exodus and became the basis of all modern alphabets. This thinking has been propagated despite the fact that there has been clear evidence that the oldest examples of the alphabet didn't come from Phoenicia and predate the existence of Phoenician culture. Absolutely. Leaders in the field would be careful not to ascribe the name Phoenician to the first alphabet, but that message has not been getting out to the myriad of classroom and media outlets that continue to teach that. The name Phoenician is a uh, anachronism when it's placed anywhere before Tyre, because Tyre became Phoenicia. Tyre became Phoenicia. So the Phoenicians didn't exist any time before Tyre, and this was during the days of Solomon. This issue is critical for understanding the roots of the Bible. Since the sophistication of the biblical narrative required an alphabet to be in place for it to be written, of course. (laughs) Stop being logical. If the alphabet was first developed by the Phoenicians in 1050 B.C. or even around 1200 B.C., that would mean Moses could not have been the author of the writings that ended up becoming the first books of the Bible, as tradition and the Bible itself claim. However, if the alphabet developed centuries earlier, in the very area where the Israelites are said to have been active in the years before or during the Exodus, then this would fit nicely with the claims of the Bible. Now, of course, here we see, since Esau married into the Canaanite tribes, he had no difficulty speaking with them. And since the Canaanites are uh, are offspring of Ham, they would have spoken a form of Proto-Hebrew also, which used to be called Hamido-Semitic, meaning Ham 
and Shem spoke the same language, at the very least, or at the very worst, they would have been dialects of one another, but they could still converse with one another as they did for hundreds of years later. Many experts in the area of ancient languages have recognized that the earliest alphabetic scripts developed from Egyptian hieroglyphs and were in a Shemitic language, the broad cultural group that the Israelites were a part of. But the Israelites were, in fact, the leading tribe of the Shemites and of the Hebrews and the other Shemites of the area you know, were far behind the Israelites. Probably had nothing to do with the invention of writing. But let's continue. But few have entertained the idea that this language may have been the more specific category of Hebrew, the language of the Israelites. And here again, the, the, the lazy bum academics don't want to believe that a person by the name of Eber existed. And of course, Hebrew is named after Eber, a real person. So was Shem, so was Noah, so were his three sons, and so are all the men and women listed in the Bible, real historical people. I hate to tell the academic world that this is the case, but it is the case. Let's continue. As seen in an hour-long interview on Israel News Lives, it started several years ago when Petrovich, an archaeologist and epigrapher at Wilfrid Laurier University in Waterloo, Canada, was studying Egyptian inscriptions and accidentally ran into the inscription mentioning Manasseh. According to Petrovich, this led to finding one gold mine after another in additional inscriptions. Yeah, once you uncover, you know, a, how should I put it? Once you uncover one really good inscription, that leads to many more discoveries. Just the, uh, the same is true of the Egyptian hieroglyphs, which were eventually decoded by a French linguist. Never, quote, never in my wildest dreams did I think I would bump into three significant biblical figures on three different inscriptions that all date to the middle of the 15th century or so B.C., said Petrovich. It was only after defining every one of the 22 disputed letters of this early alphabet script and which Hebrew letter each early sign corresponded to that Petrovich was able to interpret the Shemitic inscriptions. This led him to eventually propose that the Israelites were the ones who transformed Egyptian hieroglyphics into the world's first alphabet. These texts mainly originated in the locations of Sarabat el-Kadim, and Wadi el-Hol in Egypt. Now, of course, this had to be done during the days when Joseph was second in command in Egypt and his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, had free reign to do these things. This could not have occurred during the enslavement period because the Israelites would not have had writing materials, Okay. So whatever writing materials Ephraim and Manasseh had and Joseph would have had and the ability to make these transitions from hieroglyphics to phonetic letters and symbols had to be done during a peaceful period. Absolutely had to be done during a peaceful period. 
while the uh, Pharaoh was favoring the Israelites. Had to have been that period. Another inscription, this one cataloged as Sinai 376 from the 13th dynasty, Petrovich interprets as saying, quote, the house of the vineyard of Azanath. Oh, remember, we did a couple of shows about Azanath, the daughter of a priest of An, An being a reference to Enoch, and its innermost room were engraved. They have come to life, unquote. This sentence has three words, house, innermost room, and engraved in common with 1 Kings chapter 8, where it talks about King Solomon's construction of the temple in Jerusalem. Azanath was the wife of Joseph and certainly one of the most famous women of Egypt at that time. Well, because she would be the wife of the second in command of the whole kingdom of Egypt. And he gave him in marriage Azanath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of An, Genesis 41 45. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Azanath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of An, bore to him. There's no doubt that Azanath was a Hebrew. It's possible she was a Hamite, but nevertheless, it is lawful for us to intermarry with the rest of the white race. Those These marriages are not forbidden. It's just the father has to be an Israelite for the offspring to be considered Israelites. So that's the case with Azanath and Joseph. Her offspring were Israelites, Manasseh and Ephraim. Let's continue. Two inscriptions from the time of the Exodus add fuel to the argument. In Sinai 375a, the photo of which can be seen at the top of last week's part one of this blog, Petrovich reads the name Ahesamach and his title, Overseer of Minerals. Petrovich knows of no other instance of this name in any other Shemitic language than Hebrew. In the Bible, Ahesamach was the father of Aholiab, who along with Bazab, Bezalel was one of the chief craftsmen appointed for the construction of the tabernacle and its furnishings. Okay, so biblical connections with these inscriptions are everywhere, folks, and more, I'm sure, wait to be discovered. Sinai 375a with the etching highlight in black and the proposed Hebrew equivalents added in green containing the name Ahisamach, overseer of minerals. And with him was Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan, an engraver and designer and embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. Okay. By the way, there are a lot of uh, weavers in Ireland who are no doubt descendants of Dan. That's Exodus 38:23. The second of the Exodus era inscriptions is the most specific reference to the Exodus event. Naturally, it is also the most controversial of all. But that inscription, along with the debate that ensued, will have to wait for the final installment of our three-part series on the world's oldest alphabet. So let me click on the link and see if it actually 
works. And I may go a little overtime today because this is good stuff. Oh, wait a minute. Doesn't look like they have posted it yet. Oh, wait a minute. Okay, here it is. I had to scroll down. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve Yahweh their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? <laughs> Unquote. So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go serve Yahweh your God. Exodus 10, 7 and 8. In his third of a three-part series, we will look at perhaps the most profound and controversial interpretation proposed by Dr. Douglas Petrovich and the debate that followed his announcements. As seen in parts one and two, Petrovich has proposed that there is now sufficient evidence to establish Hebrew as the world's oldest alphabet. If verified, this would push the first instance of Hebrew script nearly a thousand years earlier than previously thought, allowing the possibility that Moses actually was the author of the earliest writing. You think? You think Moses was the author of the Torah? In the Bible, in the eyes of academia. Man, they're going to have to have their, their opinions changed, aren't they? This series of Egyptian inscriptions may also validate much of the history recorded in the Bible for the period of, not may, it is validating the history of the Bible, as all of archaeology has always done since archaeology was invented by white Christian scientists. Of the controversial text that originated from Sadabit al-Kadim, the turquoise mines controlled by the Egyptians just west of the traditional Mount Sinai, one in particular raises the temperature of this debate. Sinai 361, hand drawing above and photo below, may contain the name Moses and actually refer to the year in which the plagues of devastation were visited on Egypt. The inscription is laid out in vertical columns from right to left, which with Moses, actually the Hebrew Moshe, being mentioned at the bottom of the first column on the right. Petrovich reads the inscription as follows. Our bound servitude had lingered. Moses then provoked astonishment. It is the year of astonishment because of the lady. Now, who's the lady? You've piqued my interest. The astonishment could pertain to the judgment step seen in the film Patterns of Evidence, the exodus when Egypt was devastated. The present tense used in the inscription could mean the message was even written as the plagues were in the process of playing out. Okay. Quote, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Exodus 7, 3, and 4. The references to bondage, a year of astonishment, and that this was provoked by Moses, all remarkably fit the Exodus account of the plagues and Exodus out of slavery in Egypt, as described in the Bible. Petrovich believes the lady spoken of refers to the Egyptian goddess Hathor, who was often depicted as a horned cow. The Bible records the Israelites' tendency to revere the gods of Egypt as seen in the golden calf incident at Mount Sinai. A reference to this rebellion and what may be the year of astonishment occurs in Psalm 78, which says, How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. 
They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe, when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the fields of Zoan. He turned their rivers to blood so that they could not drink their streams. I think that's happening again today, folks. He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He gave their crops to the destroying locust and the fruit of their labor to the locust. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamores with frost. He gave over their cattle to the hail and their flocks to thunderbolts. He let loose on them his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress, a company of destroying angels. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death, but gave their lives over to the plague. He struck down every firstborn in Egypt, the first fruits of their strength in the tents of Ham. Then he led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. Seventy Psalm 78 verses 40 through 52. And here's a picture of the rock that this is inscription is contained on. So I'll just go a little longer because there's not much left of part three. This inscription along with Sinai 375a inscription naming Ahissamach includes no date, but Professor Petrovich assigned a date in the 18th dynasty around 1446 BC based on pottery remains from that period found in the caves. David Roll, who favors the exodus occurring at the end of the 13th dynasty, counters that pottery can only be used to date items found in the same year as the pottery when dealing with stratified remains in the ground. And that's true. I mean, you could find a 2,000-year-old piece of pottery, you know, in 1,000 B.C., which, which uh, you don't know when it was made. You're just guessing it's 2,000 years old. You have to find it in that strata to confirm it's 2,000 years older. Anyway, Petrovich replied that the principle to which Roll was referring does not apply to a carved mine, but only to sites where architecture experienced various phases of construction, reconstruction, with new floor levels that cleared out old material regularly. In contrast, Petrovich noted that these mining shafts were only used by a band of males who visited this remote site no more than once per year for seasonal annual mining activity. There would not have been maids, cleaning services, or renovating <laughs> within the mine shafts. If the mines yielded New Kingdom inscriptions had been used in earlier periods, there would be visible evidence of it preserved in these shafts, yet none exists. So, Petrovich is correct in assuming, scientifically, archaeologically, that the date has to be around 1446 B.C., while Professor Petrovich admits that the datable pottery evidence is no guarantee of the first use of the mines, he believes there is enough evidence along various lines to ensure that these particular mines were not used during the Middle Kingdom. And so the debate goes on. Petrovich believes his reconstruction of the development of the earliest Hebrew script also strongly supports his view that these later inscriptions are from the New Kingdom. Once again, whether late 13th dynasty or early 18th dynasty, these inscriptions appear to predate Aramzi's exodus, exodus by centuries, right? And that's the secular opinion that Ramses was the exodus pharaoh. Okay, a couple more paragraphs here. In an article in Breaking Israel News, Petrovich points to other 
Bible-esque statements that he has deciphered. A statement reading, quote, Wine is more abundant than daylight than the baker than a freeman was found in an inscription from the late in the 12th dynasty. Another inscription, this one from Sinai 375a and nearer the time of the Exodus reads, quote, The one having been elevated is weary to forget, unquote. This is from the inscription bearing the name of Ahisamach and is in a form, <laughs> that word makes me hiccup, and is in a form normally used for autobiographical messages. While Professor Petrovich has not asserted this link, I find the wording uncannily similar to the account of Joseph being raised to second in command after being cast out by his brothers. This action caused him to be enslaved in Egypt and then thrown into prison for several years before being elevated. So the question is, could this message be alluding to or identifying with the Joseph account or merely a coincidental use of similar words? Either way, it appears to be more support that the inscription is Hebrew. So these things are ongoing. And yeah, I'm not going to have time to go through the rest of this article. I may pick this up next week because this is a longer uh, episode than the first two. But this is great stuff proving once and for all that Hebrew is the original language of planet Earth. And that everybody else has been wrong about this for various reasons. And that uh, this is coming to light at a time when our, our people need to have more evidence that the Bible is a true history book and it is probably the only accurate history book ever written, okay? Because most other history books are, you know, are addenda to people's opinions, right? Etc., etc., you know, and, uh, and attempts to glorify the, the kings and queens of their own history, where the Bible does not glorify anybody except Yahweh and his son Yahshua, the kings and queens of Israelite heritage are depicted as buffoons, evildoers, bumbling idiots, and only a few of them are actually good kings and queens. So this alone proves that the Bible is an accurate record because it does not deify the humans, the Adamites, the Israelites, the Hebrews. It does not deify them to any extent at all. This contrasts with all other literature in the world that always deifies their leaders and, of course, their gods. Okay, So, folks, I think, uh, I think I will pick up on this next week because it's so good. But I'll look this over first to see if there's any more evidence or any more inscriptions listed here in this article. So, thanks for listening. Praise Yahweh. Pass the ammunition. And we'll see you all next time. <laughs> yeah, seven of me. Yeah, maybe Moses invented the tablet. Well, he certainly did because Yahweh instructed him to have those tablets on which Yahweh inscribed the Ten Commandments. Now we don't know if that was shorthand, right? It was probably a form of shorthand. It didn't have to be as long as the translations that are given to us. But, uh, of course, there were no vowels in the Hebrew language. 
at that time. So it was a, a, certainly a form of shorthand. But that form of shorthand was used to write the Bible and was picked up by the Phoenicians, picked up by the Greeks, picked up by virtually every other people under the sun because every language on, under the sun has derived from Hebrew. That's my story. And I'm sticking to it. Thanks for listening. Praise Yahweh. Pass the ammunition. Bye-bye. Free people will never remain free if they are not willing, if need be, to fight for their vital interests. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Praise Yahweh and pass the ammunition. The Restoration Hour with Pastor Eli James. All right, so I'm going to disconnect from Eurofolk Radio.